spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Just taking a cruise in the old wraith. It's episode 267 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. Going to be talking about another big TV adaptation this week. This time from AMC and it's Nosferatu. You might remember the Joe Hill book. Yep, being adapted for TV with Zachary Quinto and a whole bunch of other amazing cast members. Got a chance to attend the press conference at WonderCon this past year. And got some really, really interesting insight into the show before its premiere here in a couple days here, as a matter of fact, on AMC. So, we're going to dive into that. We'll also give my spoiler-filled reaction to Good Omens from Amazon Prime. Also, the Marvel's Cloak and Dagger Season 2 premiere. We're going to be talking about that. A bunch of nerd news, but it all starts with comics. Double Dose of DC is next with what we're reading on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Greg Rucka, comic book writer, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Drag out the long box, open up the laptop, or fire up the tablet. Whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading, and it's a double dose of DC this week because it's a big week. First, we're going to start off with Batman Last Night on Earth, number one, or I should say book one, anyway, from DC's Black Label. Scott Snyder doing the writing there, Greg Capullo on the pencils, getting that team back together again. Jonathan Glapion on the inks, Fico Placencia on the colors, Tom Napolitano on the letters. Now, things kind of start out innocently enough, right? With Batman on a case. Seems to be targeting him personally, too, by the way. Alfred seems really hesitant about the whole thing. Then something creepy goes on and something happens that actually leads to a... And maybe this is a minor spoiler, so I'll throw that out there just in case. Leads to a major time jump in the story. Now, you know, you can't fool the world's greatest detective for that long, but when they try to convince him... What they try to convince him of... It's actually pretty dark and really, really surprising, too. And it's it's one of those things where, like, okay, I can kind of see why this is on Black Label a little bit. Now, it's after a heart-to-heart with Alfred that the story really begins, I think. From here, it's basically a story about parts unknown with Batman and an unlikely companion and the end of the world, too, by the way. That's kind of how I can really describe this book and sum it up. And there's really not a whole lot else that I can say without a lot of major spoilers. And there's just a lot of stuff. It's once Bruce and Batman get to that point, because the the lines really blur between Bruce Wayne and Batman at this juncture in the book too, by the way, which is one of the interesting parts of the story. And it's like an, okay, where do we go from here? Sort of situation and sort of scenario, which, which is very, very interesting. And seeing who's there in that second half of the book and who he ends up having another major conversation about the state of the world with, and and how they both break it down, I thought was very, very interesting. And and a lot of great choices made by Scott Snyder and company in this story. Now, the, the companion that he has with him, and I always do these reviews as spoiler free as possible. And I gotta tell you, this might be the biggest spoiler of all spoilers, and I'm, I'm not going to spoil it, but I, I just I have to say that as odd as it is, this combination works 
so well for so many weird reasons. And there's no real explanation for why this has happened to this person. But once you see it, it just, for some reason, for me, it worked on so many levels. And it's almost like a, why haven't we ever seen this done before? I mean, you can't really ever know that you could do do it in this particular way. But just in general, how have we never seen something like this before? Because it just works way better than I ever would have anticipated. And to have the guts to pull something like that off from the creative team here, pretty great. And anytime you get Scott Snyder and Craig Capullo together, I feel like they're always at their best and you throw somebody like Jonathan Glapion in there and there's so many landscape shots to me anyway in this book that are so important just to kind of give you the enormity of what's going on in this world it's it's so important to paint that picture and they really really do that well I mean there's really not a whole lot more that you could say about Greg Capullo on a Batman book that hasn't already been said right he's fantastic probably one of the top Batman artists of all time. Maybe he's even in your top five. Yeah, We'll save the rankings for another discussion, but just something always works so well with Greg Capullo on a Batman book. But then you get him and Snyder together and there's like this connection and the storytelling. This gets ramped up even more so. So should be no surprise. This is a poll for me. This is one I've been looking forward to for a while and it definitely did not disappoint. Now on to something that's going to be setting up another major arc for DC, and that's Superman Leviathan Rising, number one. And I'm going to take a deep breath for these creative teams because there are a ton of people working on this book. You've got Brian Michael Bendis, Greg Rocca, Matt Fraction, and Mark Andrico on the writing. Yannick Paquette, Mike Perkins, Steve Lieber, and Eduardo Pensencia, and who can forget Julio Ferreira, Ferreria as well on the art? Nathan Fairbairn and Paul Mounts, Copacencia on the colors. Dave Sharp, Simon Bolin, Clinton Kyle's Tom Napolitano, and ALW's Tony Petiri on the letters. Whew, that's a lot. Okay, now, Leviathan, who we kind of get to see, not see in this first issue, is trying to come up with a plan to take down Superman. That's not a spoiler. That's in the preview for the book. That is in every description for the book, so that is pretty well known. And it's also kind of on the cover. Now, he does something that most supervillains don't do. And this is what, one of the things that made this book really refreshing, is that he asks for advice. Assuming it's a he, too, by the way. Not trying to be sexist or anything. You just kind of get that impression from the build and everything that we're talking about a guy here. Because, again, we kind of see, don't see what's going on but there there's also somebody else that's that's helping him and i won't reveal that here but you know this person is asking for advice now the plan is definitely interesting and it's one that i don't recall ever seeing done before and what's also interesting is who's involved in the plan and how it's executed and then the end result is super interesting as well it's like okay why do all that only to do that sort of thing and then you see a quite angry response to that end game too, by the way, or if you want to call it that. Now, we also do get to see a bit of what Matt Fraction has in store for the Jimmy Olsen series, also Greg Rucka for the Lois Lane story and how that will be like. Now, Lois, to me, stands out big time in this issue, and there's plenty of talk about how strong she really is during this book from several different characters. So if you want, I mean, this book definitely props up Lois Lane, and rightfully so, I should say, too, by the way. Now, Jimmy's story is a, lo- a ni- kind of a nice comedic break 
in the story and an otherwise kind of serious story that you know is going to lead to something major that could, I mean, change the entire DC universe going forward at this point. Now, we do get to see just how interconnected this event will be with all these different parts in it because there's a few different stories going on here that you know are going to all come together at some point and how far it really reaches out. And the amount of characters that we see already in this first issue, and you can see the trickle-down effect too, by the way, of what's going to be happening with that, and you know that there's going to be more coming from this Leviathan story. We also learn about... Now, now we do learn about the what with Leviathan, and maybe even the how, but not the why just yet. Other than the obvious why of any villain and any motive, we don't really get the why. And I don't know that we'll get the why for a while, and in this particular instance, I don't think that that's a bad thing. I like the fact that we're not really going to know why Leviathan is doing what they are doing. And, and I think that this is a great kickoff to this event too, by the way, but even more so, I feel like it's a great quick kickoff for this Lois Lane series that it to me is long overdue. And I know that Greg Rucka and company are going to do a fantastic job with that. The art was good across the board. I liked how actually the Jimmy Olsen story had a little bit of an Archie vibe to it because there's, to me, there's always been that kind of a vibe with Jimmy Olsen anyway. So I love that that had a little bit of, and there's a animal character in the Jimmy Olsen story that I didn't see coming at all. You might have seen it, it kind of teased on Twitter a little bit. Yes, that's the exactly the character that you think it is. If you've already seen that, yes, that is the character. No, I don't know why, and I don't care because it's going to be fantastic once we see a little bit more of it. Another pull for me, a double dose of DC this week, and it's a couple of really good ones with Batman Last Night on Earth and Superman Leviathan Rising number one. That's going to do it for what we're reading up next. Going to dive into the world of Amazon and Good Omens. Going to talk about the full season. We'll have some spoilers in there too on the Down and Nerdy podcast. Hi, this is Griffin Newman from The Tick and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy podcast. How do you avoid a war between heaven and hell? It is my spoiler-filled review of the Good Omens first season or miniseries, whatever you want to call it, on Amazon Prime Video that actually premiered today. So I'm not going to go really, really deep into spoiler territory for all these episodes because I feel like that would be unfair. You probably haven't had a chance to binge watch the entire season yet, but I am going to be dropping some spoilers here. Now, basically what you have is, you know, Armageddon is on the brink because the Antichrist is coming to earth. And then you have an angel who is played by Michael Sheen named Michael Sheen named Aziraphale and a demon named Crowley. And they are very much involved from the very beginning on Earth. And by very beginning, I mean Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. And that story that I'm sure you're very familiar with. And we get to see a little bit of that in the first episode as well. Now, what we also have is the birth of the Antichrist and how they're going to incorporate the Antichrist into the world of earth and how the war for between heaven and hell is actually going to occur and be started by the antichrist on earth and it's going to be the final war between heaven and hell now here's the deal aziraphale and crowley have been on earth for quite a while they kind of like it now it's crowley's responsibility to deliver the antichrist to this to this satanic nun organization and basically 
bring about the start of the apocalypse by infiltrating this child into a normal American family. Now, that really doesn't work out the way it's supposed to because Crowley just does not put 100% effort into this endeavor. Basically, he's gotten to the point where he's on Earth, he likes it, yeah, he'll do his temptations like he's supposed to, but at the same time, he's just there to have fun and do his thing. That's all he really wants to do. And Aziraphale has a very nice life as well, you know, living out his life on Earth. He's got his bookshop going. And what's interesting about this is how Aziraphale and Crowley kind of become friends throughout the whole thing. And, you know, they're kind of uneasy friends at first. You know, well, my side wouldn't like that very much. You know, an angel and a demon, you know, kind of befriending each other and vice versa. No, no, no. Wouldn't go over very well. But it's funny how you watch their friendship grow. And just like any friendships do, right, it has its ups and downs where there's times where they fight and, you know, they sort of, you know, decide to go their separate ways for a while, but they always come back because that's what really good friends do. They come back and they remain friends after these huge, you know, life-altering events at certain points, if you want to call it that. And again, again, I don't want to get too deep into what happens here because I don't really want to spoil a lot of this for you because you probably haven't seen it yet. But the first episode hooks me right away. It's quirky. It's certainly funny at times. It gives a different take on the story of creation. And it really, what the show does a lot to me, is it pokes about certain aspects of religion that might be deemed as a little bit over the top, a little bit ridiculous, or at least questioning it a little bit. So this is definitely, I could see how this show might trigger somebody who's super religious and really believes in this, but the show also doesn't say you shouldn't believe in this. But here's another way to look at it, and a lot of this comes from Crawley, and he's a demon, so take it for what it's worth, right? So you've got Aziraphale, who kind of is the one that is is saying, you know, this is perfectly reasonable, you know, we don't question the plan of God, and then you've got Crawley going, oh, I don't know, don't you think this is a little extreme? And this is in the first episode, too, by the way. So it's just interesting, that push and pull that you have there. And then throughout all this as well, you've also got a witch finder organization that looks for witches. And this includes, by the way, Michael McKean, who plays Shadwell, who is one of the witch hunters in the present day. I love Michael McKean when he just randomly shows up in certain roles. He's a that guy that you don't always remember his name. But when you see him, you go, oh, that guy, I love that guy in this thing. And then you've got Miranda Richardson, who plays Madam Tracy, and somebody else a little bit later on, too. But that's that's just a minor spoiler. I didn't tell you who it was, so don't worry about that. And their dynamic is really, really cool. And then you got Jack Whitehall, who plays Newton Pulsifer, and again, someone else. And we'll find out about that in a little bit of flashback or something. And basically, the witch finders are set out to find witches. That's what they do. But also, you've, you've got Anthema Device, who's played by... Aria Ajorna, and guess what? She's a witch, and one of her tasks is to bring about the, her. One of her ancestors wrote this book of prophecies, and all of them came true. So, part of that is trying to avoid the end of the world. So it seems like you've got all of these angles that are trying to avoid the end of the world, and the only ones that don't want this are the powers that be of heaven and hell. And that's interesting. It's like both sides, heaven and hell, both want this war to settle the score. Hell because they lost the last war and heaven because they want to deal with the other side once and for all. And the only ones that seem to want to stop this 
are those two and Aziraphale and Crawley. Now, I will say that both of these two get called to the home office a couple times, you know, heaven and hell. And I will say this about John Hamm. You might have seen him in the list on the credits. He plays Gabriel. Man, is he unlikable in this. He is a he is a really unlikable character, but in a good way. I'm not saying I didn't like his portrayal. I loved his portrayal, actually. But you're not going to like him in this. And if you're a big John Hamm fan, that might be a little tough for you. You are not going to like his character. And the way that Heaven is represented in the show is actually really, really interesting. And everybody has their reasons for wanting to keep this war on track. And then when we find out how that all goes down towards the end of these of this first of these first six episodes, and we do find out how this all shakes out too. There's really no I mean, I guess there's a little bit of a cliffhanger at the end. There's no real huge cliffhanger here. This it does resolve itself in these six episodes. John Hamm's reaction as Gabriel was was particularly interesting to me. And actually what they wanted to do at one point to Aziraphale and Crowley was also very, very interesting, but that's another spoiler for another day because I don't, again, I don't want to spoil the ending for you because I think it's really, really important. And how they get there is very interesting. And it's not just a religious commentary either. You've got historical commentary in there as well. And you see Aziraphale and Crawley kind of placed in certain events in world history, not so much U.S. history, more like world history. So there might be certain things that you recognize if you're a world history buff that will make perfect sense to you. But another part that I really loved about Good Omens on Amazon Prime Video was Sam Taylor Buck playing Adam Young, who, of course, in this particular instance, was the Antichrist. His relationship with his group of friends, where he was kind of like the leader, and he would plan all the games and the things that they would do, and they were fun. And one of the things that was supposed to bring about the apocalypse was a hellhound. Hell sends a dog to Earth. The dog's supposed to find Adam, find the Antichrist, and then that is going to be one of his weapons of bringing about the apocalypse. Now, Adam wanted a dog anyway. It just sort of worked out that way. Now, Adam doesn't know he's the Antichrist, too, by the way. Let's keep that in mind. So, one thing I loved about this, especially somebody who loves dogs, this story does have a whole, a boy and his dog sort of thing, and how powerful that relationship and that bond can be, and how that evolves to me is one of my favorite parts about this series. I don't know if it's because I'm a dog lover or not, but I got to tell you, this was a very, very powerful story that kind of gets lost in all the other things that are going on in the story because it's such a good story overall. But that really gets lost in this. And not only is Sam Taylor Buck's performance as Adam really, really great, he hasn't been in a whole lot of stuff either. And I can tell you right now, based on this, he's going to be in a whole lot more. You're going to hear that name a lot in the future, I think. I, he was just fantastic in this. But the whole story between, with him and the dog and that bond, I mean, it was just... You want to talk about a great, memorable moment from the show. That That's what I'm going to... That's one of the things I'm going to remember from this. But just overall, and speaking of relationships, just the way that Michael Sheen and David Tennant played off of each other as Aziraphale and Crawley and the way their friendship evolved, like I was talking about before... And just how they bounced off of each other. And just, it's almost like you want them to team up to do everything now. I know that's a bit heavy-handed because maybe that wouldn't make a whole lot of sense for everything. But at the same time, when you get two actors together and there's just that certain chemistry 
together, right? You got Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor, for example. You've got Danny Glover and Mel Gibson from the Lethal Weapon movies. You, you can even go Nick Nolte and Eddie Murphy to a certain extent. I mean, maybe you got to Google some of these names because you don't know who the hell I'm talking about. But there's just these actor and actress combinations, too, by the way, that just work. I mean, you want to go Brad Pitt and George Clooney from the Ocean's Eleven movies. You could do that, too. There are combinations that maybe you have yours, but, for, but Michael Sheen and David Tennant, works so well together that even if the story wasn't good and it really was, they still were just that their chemistry alone made me want to keep watching this show. This is one of those things where you're happy you can binge watch it because you have to have the next episode right away just based on the two of them alone. And then you've also got a different take on the four horsemen of the apocalypse that you throw in there. You've got God and Beelzebub, who are very different characters, and I will say that just to not spoil anything, because I think that that's an important reveal. This show changes certain things that we consider as written in stone, okay, is, is one thing that is one way that I can really put it. Not to mention, it's quirky, it's off-center at times. And it's just a lot of fun for something that's supposed to be so, so super serious. This show has so much fun with the journey that it's on and the things that it does that it is an absolute joy to watch from start to finish. So I, I got I to tell you, if, if I don't really give ratings that much anymore because I kind of decided it's a little cheesy to give stuff stars when it comes to TV shows and movies and stuff. But I will say I highly recommend Good Omens from Amazon Prime Video because whether you are religious or not or even familiar with this or not, you are going to enjoy the hell out of this. And Neil Gaiman and company should be very, very proud of what they put together because it's it's visually striking as well. And there are certain scenes that you can't believe that they were able to do as far as effects go. Or it's like, wow, they decided to do that. And there's times where the effects are cheesy on purpose too, by the way, which I love too, because that's part of the comedic aspect of the show, I thought. So go watch Good Omens on Amazon Prime Video if you haven't already. It's going to do it for my spoiler-filled-ish review of Good Omens from Amazon Prime Video. Up next, how about we talk about Marvel's Cloak and Dagger Season 2 finale? We'll do that on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, I'm Simone Missick from Marvel's Luke Cage, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It's time to save New Orleans and themselves. How about my spoiler-filled review of Marvel's Cloak and Dagger Season 2 finale from Freeform? And it's been a really wild season for Marvel's Cloak and Dagger, hasn't it? And Andre Duchesne, when he was finally revealed as the villain, I would I have no idea how powerful, how powerful Andre Duchesne Really, really could be, but he has been a major adversary throughout this entire season, and we didn't even know it until more than halfway through. So then you fast forward to Tandy and Tyrone, who were trying to take him down when he was performing in that crowd, and it looked like they did, but then everybody that was kind of mesmerized by the by the music disappears. They have no idea where they went. Spoiler filled, by the way, from here on out for season to episode 10 of Marvel's Cloak and Dagger, which is Level Up. Wanted to mention that because that was the last episode, so now we're going to get into spoiler-filled territory for this one. Now, so basically what they're going to have to do is head to the Loa dimension because remember, Andre had a Loa of his own, and the only way that he can keep his migraines at bay 
is the despair. And if he, he and he even says this himself, if I have to become a God to get rid of these, then so be it. So that's exactly what he's going for. And for him, hitting the blue note makes him a God. So he's going to try and do that. He's going to play his tune till he hits that blue note. And then basically he's unstoppable and he can do whatever he wants. So now Tyrone has to, it's awkward because they need Avita's help to get to the lower dimension. And you know, things aren't, didn't exactly work out with her and Tyrone, but you know, that wasn't going to last anyway. Right. I don't know how invested you were in that relationship. And I did, I did enjoy that relationship for Tyrone's sake, but at the same time, you kind of knew that wasn't going to last, right? So I didn't get super invested in it. Maybe that's foreshadowing as a comic book comic book fan. So I didn't get really invested in it because I knew that it wasn't going to last. Even for the TV show when they changed stuff, I'm like, no, I don't think that this is going to last too long. So basically, Tandy and Tyrone got to dust themselves off, head to the lower dimension, and try to stop him. Now, what this does is, and it seems like Tandy and Tyrone both need this from time to time. First of all, they, they always seem to find themselves in a position where they need to trust one another more. And they finally start to figure that out towards the end of this season, just kind of like they did in the last season. And even you've got Tyrone, who's trying to, you know, prop Tandy up, who's, you know, giving her a pep talk saying, you're Tandy freaking Bowen, you can do this when, she, when they're trying to find out where Andre's record shop is. And she eventually does figure it out. Now, when they get there, it doesn't make it any easier because Andre kind of dispatches them pretty easily. But while this was a difficult task for them to handle and to try to track Andre back down and finally take him down for good, it did something that both Tandy and Tyrone really needed. And that was to deal with what was going on in their own heads. Ty trying to battle that perfect image of himself that he kept trying to keep going and then you've got Tandy and her dad having to deal with who her father really was which she you know she said she dealt with it clearly she hadn't really dealt with it but we already really knew that anyway didn't we so long story short we get to see that sort of play out they make these realizations to Tandy's like hey you're always going to be a part of who I am dad I can't change that but what I can change is what I do from here on out And she kind of snaps out of it on that. And then you've got Tyrone saying, you know, I'm never going to be perfect, and that's okay. I know I'm going to make mistakes. Not always going to be the perfect son, and that's okay. So they kind of, that's, they break free of that finally. It's like we've been waiting for that for two seasons. And I'm actually kind of glad that they dragged it up because one thing that kind of gets lost in Cloak and Dagger is that we're still kind of talking about kids here. And I don't mean that in a condescending way. I'm talking about teenagers here still. We are talking about Tandy and Tyrone who are not full-grown adults. And you could say that you can say when you think maturity starts and you've got that number in your head, and I totally understand that. I'm not going to argue with you on when you think it starts. But we are still talking about teenagers here who are still trying to figure out who they are no matter how serious the situation is or how many powers they have. They don't just don't know who they are and who they're supposed to be yet. And what path they're supposed to walk, too, by the way. And Andre, in a weird backwards way, forces them to try and figure that out or at least get on the path of trying to figure that out. Of course, once they come to these big realizations, and now, by the way, seem like they're probably more powerful than ever, now they have to still deal 
with Andre. And it doesn't come easy either, by the way. He still sends them back a couple of times, and it looks like they're going to fall back into the trance. Andre's going to hit this blue note when everything's done. Well, you know, of course, that doesn't really happen. They end up taking Andre down pretty easily after they come out of their funk, knock the trumpet out of his hand, and then it's pretty much all over. And then they kind of torture him a little bit, which I wasn't really expecting. Like, you want to know how it feels? Here's how it feels when you do what you do to people, which I thought was a very interesting way to go about it. And while all this is happening, by the way, you've got Avita who's trying to keep this candle lit, otherwise they won't be able to come back, and Mayhem fighting basically her fiancé off 100,000 times, or at least a reincarnation of him, who are trying to keep, you know, who are trying to knock that candle out and trap Tandy and Tyrone in there forever. And Mayhem ends up having to deal with a little bit of stuff of her own. And then it's okay, well, who's going to be sticking around? Is it going to be Bridget? Is it going to be Mayhem? Because it looks like Mayhem is really winning out on this deal. Now, we do see Tandy and Tyrone get out, and that's when this was the only part of the of the show that I thought was kind of rushed, was where they sort of tied everything up in a neat little bow after the fact, right? We, we get to see how the whole Connor situation is dealt with. Mayhem takes care of that, basically. She kind of strings him up in the shooting range. And I love how when the cops find him, like, yeah, all right, well, he's dealt with. Oh, that's done. Well, he got what he deserved sort of thing. And that was just kind of it. No questions, no nothing. And, you know, it looks like Ty's mom going to be off the hook for that one. You see the priest. He gets. He looks like he's going to be going back into the priesthood, and he, you know, dropped off the evidence as he was asked. Sort of did the right thing there, and then you get to see maybe the most important part of the ball, and that's Tandy and Tyrone. They're going off on their own now. They're leaving New Orleans. They're branching out. They found another. I guess you could call it another case. I mean, that's kind of a, you know, lazy way of putting it, maybe. But they have found more people that need help, so they're going elsewhere. We get a little bit of hint of where that's going to be. Hard to speculate at this point, especially since the show hasn't been renewed for a third season yet. I'm sure it's just a formality, but let's not go there just yet. But there are a lot of storylines now that you could work at for a season three. If there was one criticism I had of season two overall, because I actually thought the finale played itself out really well. Only criticism I really had was, I think they bailed on Mayhem too much in the middle of the season. I was just enjoyed Mayhem so much in the first few episodes that I kind of wish she didn't get trapped in Tyrone's dimension there. I kind of wish we could have seen more Mayhem. And they did hero her up a little bit in the end as well. She lost her edge just a little bit. But I still really enjoyed the journey that they took with her. And then Bridget saying, you know, the world might need you more, so you go ahead and do your thing. So how much that relationship is going to be 50-50 from here on out, I think will be really interesting. And hopefully that is something that they focus on, focus on even with Tandy and Tyrone leaving New Orleans. Or maybe we're resetting the whole thing and get bringing in a whole bunch of new characters and making season three almost like another pilot, another season one as they move on, and now they're more comfortable with their powers, they feel like they can be a team, and they need to branch out and grow more as human beings, and the only way they can do that is by leaving the place that all of their drama has been. Are they finally able to put all of their past behind them and move forward and be heroes? And that's the question that we hear them ask. Can we be heroes at the end of this? And Ty certainly seems 
pretty sure about that. And it seems like it's going to be an exciting journey for the both of them. This could also be a hint to that potential Runaways crossover that was kind of hinted to by Jeff Loeb at WonderCon when we were talking to him this year. So that's also a possibility. We'll have to keep our eye on that. Overall, I thought there were a couple of episodes that might have been a little little bit slow in this season. And, you know, I think they spent a lot of time with Tandy and Tyrone and their own personal demons. I did like that, you know, each kind of got their own episode to focus on what it is they were dealing with. A lot of powerful stuff, by the way, when, when Tandy got captured. And Olivia Holt, I thought, was absolutely fantastic in those episodes. And it was very uncomfortable at times that it was supposed to be. And I love that this show continues to shine a light on serious issues like human trafficking and suicide. Never shies away from that and really presents it in a respectful and meaningful way. And that's something I've always appreciated from the folks at Marvel TV and especially how Joe Pekaski presents the show for a TV. So hats off to him, Jeff Loeb and the team for another great season of Marvel's cloak and dagger. Hopefully we'll get good news here soon that the show is going to be back for a season three, because I can't wait to find out where Tandy and Tyrone are going. And I want them to continue their story. And we got those comic accurate costumes there at the end too. Didn't we loved that? We finally get to see them side by side. Hopefully that continues to evolve a little bit too. It's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of Marvel's Cloak and Dagger Season 2 finale. Up next, there is some very interesting nerd news. We'll talk about it on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Julie Nathanson from Far Cry 5, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. We're finding out more and more why it's good to be the king. It's time for nerd news. And this time last week, I kicked off nerd news talking about Tom King. His uncertain future, writing Batman, all the reports that were coming out. And then a week later, who would have thought that we would be here? Because this week's report from The Wrap says that Tom King, and this has been confirmed, by the way, on Twitter, will be writing the New Gods movie with Ava DuVernay. And that is fantastic news. And it makes perfect sense, you know, why he's leaving Batman other than doing the whole Batman Catwoman series he's going to be doing for DC as well, comic book series. So that'll be in continuity too, by the way. But and there's some other unannounced projects that he still hasn't been able to talk about yet too. But this one is a big one. It makes perfect sense though. I mean, as popular as Mr. Miracle was and as, you know, I'm sure going to be even more award-winning here coming up if I'm reading the tea leaves correctly. So it's just it, the way what he brought to that character into to Barda as well, not just Mr. Miracle, but those two characters. How do you not have him involved in the new Gods movie? So not only is D, DC smarter than we thought and Warner Brothers, you know, there was there was sky is falling prophecies at first wondering what was going on and why wouldn't you keep Tom King happy? Well, yeah, I think this is going to keep Tom King pretty happy. And by the way, going to make fans very happy too, because now you've drawn a whole new interested crowd into a new gods movie that I'm not going to say it was a tough sell, but it's also not Batman. And it's hard to sell something that people don't know or understand when you're talking about movies, right? So now you attach Tom King to this, who puts that Mr. Miracle flavor on this movie. And, and to me, that gets fans' attention big time because who would have thought Mr. Miracle would have been such a success as it was as a comic book series? Now you're bringing that kind of flavor to the movie. 
I, I mean, we can only assume that they're going to be a part of this movie, right? Based on this announcement, there's been no confirmations or anything, but it'd be kind of crazy not to do that. So looking ahead a little bit, and I saw this a couple places on Twitter as well, and I couldn't agree more because she was the first choice that popped into my head too. How is Gwendolyn Christie not going to play Barda? Is she, isn't she almost the only choice for this? I'm sure there are a lot of other wonderful actresses that could play Barda, but how is it not Gwendolyn Christie? It just makes so much sense to me. Mr. Miracle, Scott Free's a little bit tougher because, I mean, I could see Oscar Isaac. I saw that name out there. I could see Bradley Cooper. There's a few others. It's probably going to be somebody that we've almost never heard of before because that just seems to happen in these instances where somebody gets cast that we don't really quite recognize or that we don't expect. But I could see either of those two guys playing that role. And I think that that would, I mean, you know what? Maybe you just give it to Jamie Lannister and you reignite that whole Game of Thrones drama right there on the screen for New Gods, right? I mean, not my first choice, obviously, but that would be kind of interesting. And that would certainly get people's attention. And I mean, they're all good actors too. So I can't really wait to see what's going to happen with this New Gods movie because this was the biggest news, news of the week by far because let's face it, there really wasn't a whole lot of groundbreaking news this week wasn't there. So this one really stands out as huge, huge news as far as this past week goes. Now, there were some trailers that definitely need to be talked about. The first one I want to talk about is Dark Crystal Age of Resistance from Netflix. That's going to be dropping on August the 30th. And I'm going to tell you right now, I don't really want to go point for point about what happened in this trailer other than saying is, was this not one of the most beautiful trailers you've seen in a long time. I mean, the world of Thra alone and what's going on there and the just the visualization of the characters and the Gelfling and so many other things going on. It was just so gorgeous and the and the Skeksis that the evil that's going on there and how they've damaged the crystal and they're like don't tell anybody. Well, the somebody just found out, three of them as a matter of fact, and that's where the adventure sort of begins. But I also didn't I, I didn't expect this to have the the fluidity of movement that it does. And I'm not just talking about the action sequences. I'm just talking about overall how this just, it takes the Jim Henson property to another level that I think we always hoped that it would reach at some point. And to me, it really does. And after 37 years to see Dark Crystal again on the screen anyway is great, but to see it with this much attention brought to it and just this beautiful world that we're going to be in for 10 episodes starting on August the 30th, I am so excited for this. I didn't think that... I, I actually get more and more excited the more I see about this. We had the first look photos that came out last week, then we had the poster, then we had this trailer, and it just looks like such a, a wonderful world and a deeply emotional story too, because I mean, you're you're talking about the the complete annihilation of the society in Thra, right? So, and there's rebellion there, and there's so, all sorts of epic battles that are going to happen. I'm just excited that we're getting Dark Crystal back anyway, but now we're going to get it to a visual level that we've never seen before. I just think that that's amazing. So I'm so psyched for that. But before that even happens, you might have forgotten that. The Kitchen, you know, the Vertigo, DC Vertigo series from Ollie Masters and Ming Doyle. That's being adapted, too, by New Line Cinema. And we finally got a trailer 
for that. And of course, if you're not familiar with, familiar with the story, it's basically set in the 1970s in Hell's Kitchen. And it's a story about mob wives who sort of take over the business after their husbands go to prison. And Melissa McCarthy's in it, Tiffany Haddish and Elizabeth Moss. That one's going to be coming out on August the 9th. And when you're looking at the trailer, from for my money, Elizabeth Moss really, really stands out. We already knew she was a badass from The Handmaid's Tale anyway. But in this trailer, she really kicks it up another level, doesn't she? I was, I was afraid of her for most of this trailer where she, there, there, there's a guy. And there's one scene that really stood out to me where there's a guy in there talking to her in the car. And he's like, you know, I'll take care of it for you. You know, doing the dirty work. Like, you know, the mobs have the underlings and stuff, right, that do the dirty work. And she says, no, 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 I don't want you to do it. I want you to show me how to do it. And I was like, whoa. So she's, you know, she's in there getting her hands dirty. And and Tiffany Haddish and Melissa McCarthy's characters do as well. But you kind of see, too, how they're sort of pushed into this, right? Not only because of, uh, they're like, oh, you know, well, they're carriers. And they don't. They don't give them enough to take care of them. And that's the other problem is that they, they're kind of forced into this life because they have nothing else that they can do because otherwise they're going to be out of their house and home and they're not going to be able to take care of their kids. So, And there was another line where Melissa McCarthy's character says, she says, look, they think that all we're good for is having babies and taking care of them. We're going to show them different. And boy, do we see that in spades in this trailer. And they re- and it happens pretty fast, doesn't it? Obviously, it's a trailer, so it's going to happen fast. But I just love how you see them take over, even in the trailer. Now, if you've read the book, you kind of know you know where, we're, where they're going with this. But at the same time, it, it was really cool to see that empowering moment in the middle of that trailer for these three women. And then you take Tiffany Haddish's character, you know, an African-American woman in this world and in the 70s in general anyway, obviously not going to be easy for her for a whole other reasons. So, and that we get to see that get played up a little bit as well. And, uh, and you know, the whole, t- you know, men not wanting to take orders from women thing is obviously going to be a part of it. Again, we're talking about the 70s here, but I think that this is a movie that's really, really going to work. It could be one of those sleeper hits. Obviously, You've got some big name actresses in the movie, but this is not, there's going to be so many people that go see this movie that don't even know that it's based on a comic book too, by the way. So that's going to be another interesting thing. But I think that this, this is one that could really work because it just felt really, really different, even though we're talking about, you know, there's been plenty of movies men made about the mob and stuff like that, but this really takes a different angle to it. So I'm really excited to see exactly what New Line's going to do with The Kitchen, which is going to be coming out on August the 9th. As far as news goes, that was kind of it this week. There's some other small stuff. You know, Jessica Jones' release date. It's, it's going to be coming in a couple of weeks, too, by the way. That's going to be coming out. We know the Avengers Project. We're probably going to get that game revealed at E3 this year. But other than that, really not a whole lot going on. So that's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, how about we talk about Nosferatu from AMC. That's premiering this Sunday. We'll talk to the writer. We'll talk to the showrunner and the cast up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Yeah, this is Flash Gordon, Sam Jones, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Prepare to be freaked out. AMC's adaptation of Joe Hill's Nosferatu novel going to be debuting this Friday at 10 o'clock. And so excited to sit down with them 
at WonderCon this past year with the cast, with the producers, with the showrunner to find out just more about Nosferatu if you're not sure what's going on with it. So let's start with Joe Hill, the author and executive producer, and showrunner Jamie O'Brien. The first question for them was, what were some of the elements you wanted to make sure you kept from the books and also things you wanted to add? I mean, obviously the bridge. we wanted to be pretty spectacular because it's pretty spectacular in the book. Um, and I then, love the bridge. I mean, I, I, the bridge is miraculous, I think. Um, so uh, that, was a, that, was a, that was probably the biggest challenge for production to make sure that we got right. Um, and it's interesting, the bridge is actually, uh, there were three pieces of the bridge that are practical and a lot of it, the interior of it, which this is a testament to our VFX team, um, is VFX. Uh, and uh, I was like, you guys aren't going to get any props for this because no one's going to know because right. it, that's how good it is. Um, so that's why I'm telling you all. Um, so the bridge was a big one. And then in terms of Charlie Manx, uh, you know, that was, uh, that was a collaboration between the book, um, myself, Zach, our di- first block director, Kari Skogland, and Joel Harlow, who did the special effects makeup. And, um, you know, the big conversation that we had about it early on and that the conversation that Joe and I had had is that Charlie makes is not, he's a man first and foremost. So he's not actually a vampire in the way that we typically think about vampires. Um, he doesn't have pointy ears. He doesn't, he's not non-human. He's not upset by garlic. Right. He can go out in the sun. Um, so anything that looks horrific about him really comes from being 135 years old. I, I suspect his breath is not very good. That's probably Now, true. Zach's breath is great, but, <laughs> but, I, but I think that because the 19th century hygiene thing, you know, like, I mean, the only reason when he was a kid, the only reason Charlie Manx would have gone to a dentist was, like, for an amputation. You know, so they didn't really. So yeah. Yeah. So the teeth are bad, but they're, they're real not, bad. They're not yeah. fangs. They're yeah. they're nineteenth century, one hundred and thirty five year old man teeth. I think one of Charlie's <laughs> biggest advantages over the heroes is he does have one hundred and thirty five years of experience. You know, he's good at not getting caught. Yeah. He's good at getting away with it. Next question. This was directed to Joe Hill. How involved were you in the process, and were you actually in the writers' room? I read Jamie's pilot script probably what about two years ago now I think so and and I thought it was the best single episode of anything I had like ever read in my life it was so she has such a deft touch she reveals so much in no I mean I'm I'm dead it's not an ironic statement and she has such a deft touch there's there were little things she was able to reveal and just like you know a paragraph or just a line of dialogue and and so then um, after I read what she did, I wanted to be careful not to fuck it up. So I kind of tried not to get underfoot too much and, you know, and to be available when she had questions, but then otherwise sort of cheer, you know, cheer her on to tell her version of the story from the sidelines. Next question for Joe and Jamie was, did you want the show to have more of a sense of dread or more of like the jump scares and stuff? I mean, I think that that sense of dread permeates the whole book. Um, and that's one of the, th- like, those are my favorite kinds of scares is, um, the kind of tension of what is on the other side of the, what's on the other end of the bridge. Mm. Um, where does this highway go? <laughs> um, what's waiting for Daniel when he gets out of the car? Um, and you know, the book I say all the time, what, one of the things I loved about it is this has a great sense of humor. Um, and it also has a really kind of 
it, uh, it unfolds in a way that you're never ahead of it. And um, as the characters get kind of, as you learn more and more about the characters, you do, for me, you're, you're like, the, the tension is ratcheted up, and so we wanted to be faithful to that. I'm not, a, I'm, for myself, I'm, I'm not above a good jump scare. You know, I think there's plenty of room for that. But they, they are kind of cheap and weak. I mean, if someone drops a stack of frying pans behind you, you're like, oh! But that's not like great horror. That's just a loud noise, you know? And I, I think you get more mileage out of suspense. And suspense is about one thing. It's about taking a character you care about and putting them out on a ledge 10 stories above the street, you know, to rescue a cat. And then they're crawling out to get the cat and they get to it and the cat scratches them in the face. And that's, that's hard to look away from and is a lot more interesting than just, you know, you're, someone's walking down a dark hallway and then the soundtrack goes, blah, which of course is going to make you jump, but it's kind of gimmicky, kind of weak, a little weak. The next question up for Joe Hill and Jamie O'Brien from Nosferatu was, how can the show add to the vampire mythology? And you sort of talk about presenting the villains in the series. I don't know how to talk about vampires generally, but I can talk about Charlie Makes a little bit. And um, one of the things that I think that I loved in the book and that we really explore in the show um, is Makes' connection to the Wraith, his car. And the car itself, um, this sounds kind of cliche, but it's really true, it is a character in the show. And there are moments in the show, just me watching the cuts come in, where I've thought to myself, you know, the car is just as big of a villain in the show as Makes is. Really, I, I kind of hate mustache twirling villains. You know, I, I really believe that you know everyone views themselves as the hero of their own story, and I do think, in a weird, twisted way, you can look at the decisions Charlie has made and and see how he would view himself. Because you know, in his mind, he's rescuing children from lives of of you know suffering and unhappiness. And then, and then as he takes them to Christmas land, he gradually drains all their hate and regret and sorrow and grief. All that comes out of them. And when Charlie is done with them, there's nothing left but happiness, innocence, and teeth. <laughs> you know? And, and I mean, in a way, you know, when you think about childhood, you think, that, shouldn't that be enough? I mean, happiness and innocence sounds great. The thing about a kid who is who is innocent. The thing about innocent, I think we over-idealize innocence in a lot of ways in our culture. Because an innocent child will rip the wings off a butterfly and laugh about it. You know, set fire to ants and have no idea that he's causing another living creature to suffer. It's, it's, it's our regrets, our sorrows, our guilt that makes us complete functioning human beings. If you can't feel sorrow and regret, you know, you're not an angel. You're a sociopath. Um, and so I think that's, you know, Charlie has this vision of saving children and bringing them to a place of complete, never-ending happiness. And from a certain point of view, that does sound heroic. But when you get close to it, actually, it's kind of monstrous. And it also, you know, allows him to live forever and stay right. young. So he, you know, there's Right, another. plus he's <laughs> drafting off their spirits. Yeah. I mean, in some basic way, he's, you know, he's using them to recharge. The final question for Joe and Jamie was about Vic and Charlie is saying, is Vic Charlie's nemesis or is their relationship kind of different? I don't think that either Vic 
or Charlie would consider the other one their nemesis. I think that they are both people who have extraordinary gifts that come with costs. And their gifts ultimately put them in conflict. Um, but I don't think, like just from a character standpoint, I don't think Charlie Makes thinks that Vic McQueen is his nemesis. I think he thinks that she is intriguing and potentially dangerous. And I think that Vic probably doesn't see Max as his as her nemesis either. I think that she sees him as definitely dangerous. Um, and someone she has to deal with. <laughs> I, mean, I feel like Max feels like this, there's one scenario where Vic could actually be of use to him, and if she can't be of use to him, she could be a speed bump. She has an extraordinary gift. Yep. Next up, it was time to talk to the cast of Nosferatu. Zachary Quinto, of course, plays Charlie Manx. Ashley Cummings, who is Vic McQueen. Eben Moss-Bachrock, who plays Chris McQueen. Olafur Dari Olafsson, who, pl- who plays Bing. And Jakara Smith, who plays Maggie. The first question, of course, directed to Zachary was, you know, talk about Charlie's relationship with the Wraith, with his car. Well, they're sort of inextricably tied, um... You know, Charlie's an extension of the Wraith, and the Wraith is an extension of Charlie, and so um, that plays out through the narrative of the first season in a lot of interesting ways. Um, It was really fun for me to get to learn how to drive it and to have my own relationship with the car as an actor. Daria and I spent a lot of time in that car together. He's good at driving the that car. It's fun. Yeah. It's really cool. Um, so You're the backing it up all over yeah, the place. Yeah, I would. Between <laughs> takes, I'd reset the car, and you know, it's uh, the car is definitely its own. It's a character on the show, and uh, and so I'm I'm excited to be able to kind of continue that relationship. And the car has relationships with other characters on the mm-hmm. show as well. So um, it's definitely a big part of the world. Uh, it's a big part of the world that Joe created, and I think we've been able to make it a part of our show in a really interesting and cinematic way, which is uh, exciting. And he did incredible work uh, from the acting perspective. I remember the first time being on set and hearing him uh, breathe, and the wheezing sounded like a car engine. And the first take we did, I actually thought it was some kind of uh, sound effects, but it was him. He did it all. There's some wheezing going on. Some some strong wheezing. He needed a ventilator. Next up, the question to the cast of Nosferatu was, what drew you to your roles and wanting to, wanting to work on the show? You'll hear from Eben first and then from Ashley. I mean, I, you know, for me, what I'm always trying to look for and when I'm, when I'm approaching something and I'm, I'm looking at scripts or things is like, uh, I guess it changes. But right now I've been thinking a lot about uh, love and connections between people and, and how simple and complicated this sort of most basic uh, emotion is. And um, I was really interested in this man who would do anything for his daughter, who adores her, but he would say he would do anything for her, but at the same time, he, there's things that he is in a way incapable of doing. Um, and I th- that conflict and that sort of vibration between these two um, instincts or, or drives it, I think it's like a really human and um, thing that I'm fascinated by. It's interesting. Kind of in answer to that question as well, what I really loved and appreciated about both the book and the script and what drew me to Vic was uh, the fact that 
in this day and age, we've kind of seen this rise of of female. She can get. <laughs> These female heroines, like often uh, superheroes that are women, and it's been super empowering to see these on our screens. Uh, what I have noticed is there is a lot of emphasis placed on kind of external strength or an unwavering emotional fortitude. And what I loved about Vic and what we discussed with Jamie early on was that she's terrified when she shows up and she's courageous and that is her strength her strength her heart is her strongest muscle her superpowers are her creativity her intuition her vulnerability her empathy and all of these kind of typically feminine traits are kind of coming to the forefront and is what she utilizes to take on this force of evil um, <laughs> would you say yeah no I don't, I don't know um, he he's, a, he's a wounded he's a wounded man um, raggedy raggedy he's raggedy um, but yeah I think that was also what initially drew me to the script as well next up the question was there seems to be a theme of children being failed by their parents in Nosferatu so how did you approach that with your character? So you'll hear from Zachary, and then you'll hear from Jakara. The more you learn about Manx, the more you realize how uh, failed he was as a child, um, and how much trauma he experienced at a very young age, and, um, and how the lack of resolution of that trauma and the inability uh, to examine it is actually what evolves him into this kind of monster. Um, and so kind of building on what Eben was saying, it's like the idea of like, how do you, like where is the love and, and how do you love a character that's so evil and, and doing such reprehensible things? Um, and I think, you know, for me, it's been about like going back to the source of that trauma. Um, and I think, you know, what, what we were trying to build is the idea that like Manx actually really thinks he's doing good on some level, you know, saving these kids from their neglectful and um, and selfish, thoughtless parents. Um, he doesn't really give so much uh, thought or consideration to the cost. Um, but uh, but that that was important for me, you know, to really understand that monsters are created through trauma and uh, and and abuse and neglect and. Uh, and, and Manx is no exception to that. So how do we integrate that to make him a little bit more multidimensional, a little bit more complex, and not so um, not so one thing? Um, and uh, I think that's important, an important part of making the show compelling and drawing audiences into the multiple levels of complexity that exist in him and in the world. I think the crazy thing is, like, um, like you said, all the characters in a way have been like these failed children and so you sort of see the results um, the cool thing about the TV show is that the, the characters and their backstories are so expanded and you see so much more of what it's like to be them um, you sort of see the aftermath of what happens when uh, kids are neglected and, and they're not taken care of properly and you're kind of faced with the fragility of kids as a whole because on one hand you do have someone who thinks he's rescuing them and saving them from these awful situations and that's something that we can all agree needs to happen. These kids can't be in these situations, but um, I think it makes you take a look at yourself in, in the real world as well because you're also faced with what it means to actually handle those situations as they're supposed to be, which sometimes means separation from parents. Um, and in some of the characters that have had to do that for themselves, you see even the aftermath of that. And so it's kind of this... Um, 
terrifying thing in a sense where like you have the supernatural stuff going on but you also have the very real consequences of reality and the the way that we affect each other uh, in family relationships and friend relationships and I think um, for all of us it was kind of having to take a deep breath and like mm -hmm. reflect on that within ourselves and our own lives and our realities and um, tap into that to give it an authenticity that it deserved. Next question up was to Zachary and the, it was pretty simple. Are we going to see this for the book fans? We're going to see stage five of Charlie Manx in this first episode? You don't see stage five yet. Um, in the pilot all you see is uh, up to four. You meet him in four and then he ages backwards obviously as he takes the kid to Christmas land and that becomes the the sort of routine uh, and then we save five. You'll see it later. The final question for the cast of Nosferatu went to Bing himself. This one was for Olafur. And talk about the journey that Bing goes on becoming Charlie's familiar. Jamie really helped with Bing's journey. Uh, Jamie's over there. Jamie, thank you for that, by the way. No, she really did. She, she by making uh, Bing, by giving him access to Ashley's character, Vic, it sort of brings him much more into the story, so it becomes much harder for us to see him slowly being dragged over to over to Charlie Manx and over to his cause. And Charlie does really does everything he can to make sure that Bing believes in the cause. And like you said before, I mean, at the heart of it, it. Charlie Mang says that he's trying to save children from bad parents, mm. and I think most of us could agree we, we would all be willing to take part in that, but not in the way he would. <laughs> uh, but so I think what attracted me to the story was just like when I read the book, I remember I really enjoyed Bing's character, but when I uh, got the scripts, I sort of I was I was really thankful for that that I could really connect with him on an even deeper level I think through the scripts there's one thing that I noticed when I saw the first episode of Nosferatu when I was at WonderCon and that is that this show will keep you uneasy it'll creep you out at times it'll break your heart at times too the the relationships in the family here in Nosferatu is one of the most surprising things about it for me was that yes this is a horror show that we're talking about here and there's a lot of horror elements and a lot of thriller elements as well but there's also such a deep story of family in this new england town which i loved i, I grew up in new england as well loved the presentation there there's just something about this show that wasn't just your standard horror horror series and i loved that and even if you weren't a fan of the nosferatu books and are, are actually i should say hadn't read the nosferatu books you can jump into the show. You won't be lost at all. There's a there's a great explanation of what's going on. And Zachary Quinto's Charlie Manx just hits it out of the park right away in this first episode. So make sure you're watching Nosferatu Sunday night, every Sunday night, actually, starting at 10 p.m. on AMC. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to AMC and the folks from Nosferatu for chatting with me at WonderCon this year. You want more interviews from us? Yeah, actually, a couple articles that we have about Nosferatu on our website, downandnerdypodcast.com. You can also go there to get a little bit of a review of the show as well. You can find that up there. Also, follow us on social media, at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and Instagram, facebook.com slash downandnerdy as well. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly. Be good to your fellow nerds.